All right, guys, welcome back to the stream. This is August 23rd, 2020, or sorry, Jesus Christ, 2022. And uh, this is Bitcoin and Markets live stream. My name is Ansel Linder. See a lot of friendly faces and friendly names, I guess, here in the live stream. So welcome, welcome. Uh, just for your guys' information, I am past the 30 days or 30 live streams in 30 days. Uh, this will be my 32nd live stream on Telegram. Paying members over on BitcoinAndMarkets.com, which I so much appreciate their support of my content. That is uh, available. All, all the recordings and the archives of all these live streams are available to those those uh, those members. So check out BitcoinAndMarkets.com. And if you're not a paid member, you can sign up there. Uh, it's only $5 a month and it supports everything that I do here content wise thank you for all the recent um participation in the telegram channel uh in the comments section it has been great to uh, learn from you guys and and get more content that i can learn from and react to uh, that's where i got this video it's from uh morgoth morgoth never heard of this person apparently he's well known in the kind of alternative space um, maybe similar to like a Colbert report or something like that, or Corbett report. And I, I, I used to listen to Corbett report all the time. Like every single day I would listen to that. I haven't listened to some of this, I guess you would call it alternative stuff in a while. Uh, I've gone down more of a rabbit hole into, um, I guess more mainstream or more some people could call it maybe more right-wing books and things like that. Um, I I guess I consider myself a right-winger or I'm a libertarian anarchist, but and I don't vote because I think if you vote, then you have to accept the outcome, and I don't accept people that I don't want ruling over me, right? But um, at the same time, I kind of look at the world as happening outside. It's like the same feeling I get looking at geopolitics is the same feeling I might get looking at the stars, right? Like the stars are so far out there, they're kind of beyond our control. Um, also, I get the same feeling when I go into the forest, like you go into uh, nature somewhere and there's so much nature around you that you don't have any, like you have no say over what's happening with that, that natural setting. There's so it's a complex system. And that's one thing I've talked about a lot is a complex. Am I coming through here? Test, test. Uh-oh. I hope I'm coming through. Okay. Um, I wasn't seeing the reaction from the little glow stick, so I hope I was coming through. Uh, if you guys could, one of you guys listening, if you're a member, could you hit me up in the comments, one of the comments, and say that it came through, all that audio. Damn. Okay. All right. Thank you, Carlo. That worked out great. <laughs> so where was I? Yeah, it's just a complex system upon a complex system. And that's what I've talked about a lot recently uh, with Bitcoin and with currencies. And, you know, that we went to a credit-based system, not because of some sort of central planning. It was that the central plan, the success of that kind of central planning, if there, if you could even 
whittle it down to being central planting. The success of that central planting was because there was fertile soil for that. Okay. And people, the history of mankind went along a, a, uh, the path of least resistance, almost like water flowing downhill, right? That there was a fertile ground for credit for after World War II, everything needed to be built up and the trade lanes were secured by a global hegemon that had 50% of the world's GDP and probably 80% of the world's military power at the time secured these free trade lanes. And it was such a fertile ground for credit that we needed a currency or the 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 mass of humanity needed a currency that could expand and that was the credit-based currency and that's why hard sound money went by the wayside now conditions have changed right we have saturated ourselves with credit and so water flowing downhill will be the adoption of a sound money because sound money is resistant against collapse um where credit-based money is prone to collapse in in this situation and the history of the last uh 14 years or whatever since uh, 2008 has been kicking the can on this eventual change but nothing that we can do nothing the globalists can do nothing that we anarchists can do or bitcoiners can do is going to change uh the course of humanity towards a sound money i mean there might be some individuals like you could say that michael saylor uh, he has such a big audience that he can convince people and he can maybe speed up the process. But that is considering, like, let's say Michael Saylor talks uh, on TV and he gets somebody to buy Bitcoin, but then Bitcoin crashes 50% and that person sells it, right? They they bought the top and they sold the bottom and then they're uh, convinced not to ever get involved with Bitcoin again. All right. And that, that's the problem also with being an evangelist for Bitcoin which I have learned personally throughout the years that I would convince people to buy Bitcoin or I would even sell them a little Bitcoin. And then the, the price would crash. Very recently, one of my wife's uh, uh, co-workers, he bought, he bought a Bitcoin and it was, I think it was like at 40,000 uh, about a year ago. And then he sold it at, at 20. So, you know, these, and th then they're going to be sworn off of this. So the effect of a personality, the effect of evangelism is a net zero. It really is. In my opinion, you can't change the course of history. The course of history is going to work out. It's going to go the path of least resistance, just like I said, going water going downhill. So anyway, it's a complex system and we can't control it. We can't modify it. And we're kind of just all leaves in the wind, if it were. And the only thing we can control is like our own actions, our own ethical stance, our sense of self and our um, satisfaction with how we act in the world. Um, and that's what I try to teach my kids. Like when they lay their head down on the pillow, were they proud of themselves that day? It, it doesn't matter what other people do. Uh, think of you or what accolades you get in life or anything like that. It's how you behave and how you feel about your own actions. Um, and that's all that we can really control in life and uh, not the broad sweep of a uh, sweep of human history. We, we cannot control that. And the, the world is full of incentives 
and people will flow downhill or the history will flow downhill. So anyway, that's kind of uh, where I'm looking, uh, where I'm sitting and where I'm coming to this, this from. And geopolitically, I, I love talking about this stuff because so, so many things, it makes so many things in my head click. And you guys know how when you, when you're intellectually curious and you're going down this path of discovery, uh, whether it's, you know, learning about a topic for the first time or, um, when you like, remember when you, uh, Bitcoin clicked for you, it was like all of these kind of dominoes fell that, oh, I, my, now my vision is so much more clear and I can see so much further out. That's kind of um, why I like talking about Bitcoin, why I like talking about uh, geopolitics and stuff, because you get that feeling once again of, of clarity and uh, it's, it's just a real good feeling. And I hope that I can um, maybe influence other people to have that same feeling. So anyway, um, this one, this video was sent in by Chadwick. I believe it's Chadwick Holmes. Let me make sure. Are you listening? There you are. Uh, so yeah, thanks for sending sending this my way. And I try to be open minded and listen to everything, but it's it's it is going to take a quite big hill to cross or uh, hill to climb to get me to uh, uh, totally changing my opinion. I mean, I'll modify my opinion all the time, but um, uh, and incorporate things into the into what what I think about the world. But uh, it'll take a lot to make me completely dump something and uh, start something else here. Another example of this, before I get started, this is going to be a long live stream today, guys. So just, just prepare yourself. <laughs> um, uh, an example of that is I wrote a piece just this morning. I just pushed it out on the telegram room there and it's about the DXY versus the broad dollar and what we can learn from this. And, you know, I was in the camp for a long time. I think I was one of the only Bitcoiners that was talking about strong dollar uh, years before it was uh, popular, right? And the common response I always heard <clears throat> was that the DXY is just a measure against other currencies, other fiat currencies. And that's true. But now it seems that all these people or many of these people have abandoned this and they look at the DXY and they're like, oh my God, the dollar is getting so strong. And what's that going to say for Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin will weaken against a strong dollar. Um, but what I showed and what I posted on, on Twitter this morning was a couple charts of the DXY versus the broad dollar. And that the broad dollar, I think it has 33 or 34 currencies and it's weighted by our tr our trade partner status. So the Chinese yuan is in there, the Mexican peso, you know, there's many more currencies. And obviously the euro is there too, but the, I think the euro is only about 12 or 15% uh, where in the DXY it is uh, two thirds of the DXY. Um, so anyway, I, I just showed that the DXY has really taken off uh, and made new, new, multi-decade highs where the, the broad dollar isn't even above the high from the, the corona crash. Uh, so what we can infer from that is that the DXY is just a measure of other fiat currencies. And what it's telling us is that the, the euro is collapsing. Um, so it's, it's a weird twist there where I do then actually reincorporate the fiat that it's just a measure against other fiats into a new kind of uh, analysis of of these dollar indexes and what they're telling us anyway. So that was just an example. All right, let's get started on Morgoth. 
I really like his accent. I like his stuff. He seems like a principled dude. Uh, this is not, if I say anything negative in here, it's not obviously a personal attack or anything. It's just that my opinions differ. And yeah, so let's go. I hope all my tests this morning worked out. Oh, I, the reason why I'm not doing a video, I tried to go through OBS and, and broadcast here on Telegram. That didn't work. I got this audio reverb. Uh, inception and i still haven't figured that out i'm sure there's some easy setting that i can click and and not hear myself but um then i tried to share screen on telegram and that looked like it was going to work but then when i replayed the video the test video it was uh, staticky um for, for the you know the system audio that was playing the video so i didn't want to do that way so what i'm doing is i'm just getting my bluetooth speaker and i'm holding it up next to the microphone and we'll try that so all right let's get started and of course i link to this video up in the show notes or in the show notes in the uh telegram channel and let's get started well hello again there folks well i thought the time had come for me to kind of lay out what i think's going on in the world one second i'm going to slow this down i had it sped up some of the dynamics at play so it's a huge subject and uh, this is a sort of think of it as a working hypothesis um to to try and so we, we've got some kind of framework to understand what's been going on recently and i thought i'd get back on me me armchair general armchair and pour myself a whiskey get the chest poured out which is something that i've actually done for a long time people i love this opening i love i love his personality um you know, he's at least saying it's a hypothesis, and I think that's very important. And <laughs> uh, pour yourself a whiskey. That's what I should have done while I was reviewing this. But, okay, let's continue. Ooh, remember, I went all the way back to the early blog days, and I used to do a post here and there where it was a more of a strategic perspective. And I thought I would um, do it again here, uh, looking back on what's happened in the world, because it's as if everybody's struggling for a narrative. It's as if what's been happening for the last couple of years, it doesn't quite fit into so many kind of framings. You know? um, and so this is my attempt to try and put some kind of order into what, what's going on. Now, there's some, um, there's some issues which I'm going to skip over because YouTube doesn't like it regarding medical issues. But I've covered all of that before on, on the Odyssey Morgcast. Uh, and, I, and I actually don't need to because what I want to get into here is power because I think it's all very well when people are trying to explain this stuff and it always amounts to sort of out of context gotcha quotes or, you know, the, these kinds of things. And I think when, when we, a better way to understand things in the world um, is just through power and how power functions but and it's also probably better than uh, economics. Uh, but, you, you know, you, you, you have the different people coming at this from a different perspective so that's already uh different than my perspective so he's concentrating on power and how power manifests and how you can trace power and how you can identify power and how you can use power etc um and i come at it as a complex system so th those are you know power is just one aspect of a complex system you can't have power without people to have power over, right? 
um, so that that's very first right off the bat. Um, I think studying power is just studying one aspect. It's not, it doesn't have very deep explanatory power. <laughs> no pun intended. So if what I think is interesting is that if we go all the way back to the Peloponnesian War, because this is where, uh, to set out this framework, um, and if you look at the dynamics in the Pele Peloponnesian War, you'll see that um, Athens and uh, Sparta are at war with each other. Sparta is very much land-based. Obviously, the Spartan land fighting force is legendary. Athens very much a sea force. And you can see it on the map that it's reflected here. Um, the Athenian League is scattered around the coastlines, which lends itself towards being a uh, sea power, uh, which means they can go, they, they, they've got a lot more fluidity of movement than the Spartans do. But the problem is, what you get is um, the Athenians don't have the manpower to take on the Spartans in, on their own territory, but at the same time, the Spartans struggle um, to meet the, the Athenians on the sea. So what you have is this kind of uh, conflict, which which is the 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 dichotomy of the, the the elephant and the whale, where one is obviously in the water and one is on land. And they are both kings of their, their own domain. But the problem is they, 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 these kinds of wars tend to be very long and very drawn out because essentially they're, they're operating in completely different elements. And so that you can move that on to a, a bit more here and you can go to the Napoleonic War. Now, in actual fact, they, they, this is also like the whole history of uh, Britain. Uh, the British Empire, the English power, and that kind of thing, is long, for obvious reasons, has long been the, the wheel in this scenario, with various um, people, power actors, uh, empires on the continent acting as the elephant. And so what we see in these cases is the, the British would then have the ability to move, again, just like the Athenians, move around and be a lot more fluid um and but they wouldn't have the manpower to actually let, set set foot on the empire uh on the mainland and wage war against them so the, the most obvious example would be the napoleonic wars where he is absolutely uh dominant the elephant uh, on the main continent of europe and the british can't do anything about it for a long long time and so britain really is in the mode of going around the world and um, trying to find allies, trying to hamper the economic systems and all of that kind of thing. And this lends itself naturally to free trade and economics where the, because you can sh you're in the position where you can ship more people, more goods around the world. And um, over time, it didn't do, do the, the Athenians any good, but this actually tends to tip the scales in favor of the sea power over time because they've got this ability to move around and um, gather up more resources, go hunting for allies while they can't really be attacked. And that it is as if the elephant is surrounded and in a constant mode of uh, trying to defend itself. Or All right. So very good. Very good analysis there. Um, what I would add is 
no, he, he kind of touched on it, that there are similarities between Athens and England. Right. So Athens was more of a free trade type of economy and they had more individualism uh, and property rights. I mean, I'm, I'm no Athens scholar, but I know that they are seen as being the kind of foundation for Western civilization. And that kind of baton eventually was passed on to Britain, who is also a sea power has, you know, values, free trade and property rights and kind of brought that into the modern era. And you can expand that. He's going to do that here in a second. You can expand that to the United States as well. But this, the, but the geography is the controlling thing here. So I, throughout this, I get this idea that he thinks that people have control over this. But no, people don't. It is all ultimately a function of geography that dictates your culture. It dictates your economics. It dictates all of that. Um, and then he said the, the sea power uh, will eventually win out. Well, one of my studies of uh, currencies has been like, the reserve currency of the world tends to be the largest uh, trade network. So whatever the broadest trade system, that's where you need money, right? Because trading is, is what you use money for mainly. I mean, you also have store value, but one reason why it has the store value is also because it's used in the medium of exchange. So it, they, it's kind of a, a, a linchpin of economic activity is, is the form of the money. And the largest trade network will tend to be held the most in reserves because it is the largest trade network. And a sea power that has the geography to reach out and have the largest trade network will tend to have the largest money and all of that stuff. So uh, it all ties together here. Um, I mean, it's, it's very reminiscent of mckinder which he does talk about here in a second so let, let's keep going and he he still has not as far as i can tell has not tied in this idea of power um it's just an idea of geopolitics at this point and m like my idea of geopolitics is that the geography the geo part actually is the controlling part and uh, the politics follows from geography so all right let's continue off an invasion but it does have its own strengths i mean the 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 land power will be a centralized power it'll have a huge access to men and uh, in some cases uh resources it, 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 because it'll just marshal all the resources on the land you can then go into uh, sort of more, more towards modern history here and you can see the same thing again so you see the anglo old anglo strategy of the United States. I'll also add to this that uh, sea travel is cheaper. So yeah, the, the land-based power, they have uh, m much more, many more resources and many more people and, and all of that, but it's expensive. 
it takes a lot like, you know, the, I looked it up here on a channel in one of my live streams. I think it was like the, the second or third live stream that I did on telegram was talking about, um, the relative costs of sea travel or water travel, uh, trains or, or, you know, by rail or by truck and water travel is 10, 12, 20 times sometimes cheaper than over land. I mean, it's dramatic. And so you have this decrease in cost. So the, for example, if you are a sea-based power like Britain, you were able to um, move very quickly around the world, move your forces very quickly. Where the land power, like let's say uh, Russia wanted to have power in Germany, but they also wanted to move power to Central Asia. That That is a long march, guys. It's very expensive to move all of that man, men and all, all that equipment and all that oil or all that energy. So that dictates the economics as well. It's, it's a, it's a cost benefit analysis. It's a, uh, and th this is part of my discussion about China. You know, China has very high costs relative to the United States. And most of that is due to security. So that, that brings it, uh, let me talk about that with uh, Great Britain. So Great Britain doesn't have to spend a ton of money on defending their immediate borders. But Germany sure does. France sure does. Russia definitely does. China does. So these land-based powers, they have a different cost structure. And that's what dictates their governmental structure and their culture being more militaristic or whatever. Um, I mean, it's no surprise that Bismarck and Hitler both came out of Germany, which has, you know, uh, and Prussia before that, because you have this, this certain geography that dictates that you have very expensive borders to protect your inter your cost of protecting is very high and it becomes part of your culture. This militarism becomes part of your culture. And that's kind of scary when you think about the future, because if the EU breaks up, you know, the handcuffs kind of come off of Germany a little bit. We've tried to make them into we, uh, the globalists have tried to rein in Germany and make Germany into this trading power. But it's, it's false, okay? The only way that they could do that is by, uh, you know, putting a ball and chain around France and around England and around Italy and all these other powers and literally finance the, the Germans to become a, a trading power. I'm not saying they won't be a trading power in the future. I'm saying that they tend towards militarism. Because they're on the Northern European plain, they have very you know, porous borders that they have to protect. The hordes come from the east and the Franks come from the west. And the, the Swedes come from the north, you know, or the, the Danish, whatever, the Danes. So there, it's, a, it's a very um, kind of hostile environment right there. And so you, it tends to make them more militaristic. And, and discipline is very important 
I mean, it's not it's not a surprise that Germany has trains that run on time because of the militaristic discipline. It's a disciplined society, and that is the culture that it has. So, all right, let's let's continue with this. I don't want to rant too long because it's already going to be a long long live stream. Uh, in opposition to the Soviet Union, and you see the same dynamic again. And this is where I think it, it actually gets quite interesting because on top of all the usual strengths and weaknesses of both sides, what you can see um, again, which is important for where I want to go here, is that they get strategic um, positions and they defend them. So if you think of the, the British getting something like the Rock of Gibraltar, on the face of it, that doesn't seem it doesn't it doesn't seem like the greatest thing to have. It really is just a little town with a huge rock where. But in terms of power, um, it's strategic power. Having the Rock of Gibraltar is a great boon for the British Empire. You can see that the Americans carried on this trade for a long time as well. And in fact, when you go back through history, you'll see that the 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 sea power, the land. Uh, the whale is a, is able to do that. It's a, it has the freedom of movement to kind of go around locking down all these strategic positions, and what this means is that the it it, it actually has a, a very bad long term effect on the on the land power because it finds itself locked in on all sides. So one of the things that I've been asking myself over the last couple of years is where does power actually lie? in a globalized world who has power what has power and i don't just mean in terms of geographic blocks uh, sort of trying to get one over each other trying to cling on to afghanistan or trying to block this all, all of the more traditional roads to power because it's true enough america still does have the biggest military it still does have all of the ships and all of the nukes and all of this kind of thing china is rising as well but when you look at the world and you'll see what's going on in the world, there seems to be another layer of power which has been the traditional nation state, the traditional all right. So I mean I mean this is stereotypical analysis of like from mckinder and he's even showing it on the video so i recommend watching the video of the you know the world island which is eurasia and there's the heartland which is pretty much eastern russia um and ukraine and, and that that's like the heartland and then you have the the rim countries um or the borderlands you know the rim yeah, and that would run from I would say like Scandinavia through kind of Central Eastern Europe through East uh, near Mid East towards um, India and around towards the Chinese coast and and all that. So it whoever controls the heartland is supposed to control the rimland, and then whoever controls the rimland controls the world is, is the saying that Mackinder had. Um, but the U.S. kind of puts a damper in this whole situation because, you know, the, the United States and I would even say the whole Western Hemisphere is kind of a island power. Right. Kind of like if Britain would have its own continent. 
That's what the U.S. has. And the amount of power that it can exert over the world is unparalleled. Even today, long into the future, there's no way to do it because the Eurasian continent is broken up. It doesn't have the ability to have one unified culture. Where the into Canada, but one of the things that keeps the U.S. culture together is the Mississippi River Basin, and that doesn't stretch up into into Canada. So um, Canada would be more towards like the Hudson Bay and the St. Lawrence Waterway and all that stuff. So that would keep Canada together, where the Mississippi River Valley kind of keeps the U.S. tied together. Um, and then Mexico is just a series of high mesas, high plateaus, and it doesn't really have anything holding it together all that well. That's why you see um, uh, lots of like cartels in that are very powerful, relatively very powerful in Mexico than you do in the United States because geographically it's broken up. Okay. And maybe over many thousands of years, we could see a balkanization of Mexico. That's, that's possible. Um, but not, I don't think of the United States because it's, it's too, uh, contiguous of a landmass. Now, when you look at Asia, it doesn't have that. Okay. The, there is no east to west flowing river uh, that connects all of Eurasia and makes it into one holistic type of culture. It's all broken up by mountains, by north-south rivers, by different water uh, masses like the Black Sea or the Caspian Sea, uh, the Himalayas, um, you have the northern European plain, the plain and the steppes, uh, that the Eurasian steppes that don't uh, have any borders to invading hordes and stuff. So uh, there, there's just a lot of it's a it's a imp, it's less perfect of a geography if you want a holistic human culture. Okay, now I'm not saying which is better or worse because it's pretty awesome to have a lot of different ethnicities, to have a lot of different cultures, like the diversity of human life is beautiful, right? And so I'm not saying that the uniformity of the United States is better. I'm saying that it tends to breed more power, more uh, economic uh, vitality. And since it is a world island, it's going to be more free market based, more personal property based just like the UK and just like Athens, much more trade oriented and individual. And that has the best effect on economic prosperity. So it doesn't matter how much great central planning Brussels does because eventually Brussels will lose because of the Western hemisphere island that is controlled and run by the United States. Um, and they will, you know, the, the European powers, the continental powers will always tend towards more control, more centralized control, which is less good for, um, you know, economics. So, all right, let's, let's continue. We geographic, uh, geostrategic, uh, worldview is itself in danger of being outplayed and outsmarted by something else. 
and what it's being outplayed and outsmarted by, um, and it is an idea, is um, a network of powerful institutions across the world which are all connected and all have a similar agenda. So in this, we can look at something like the United Nations or the, the World Health Organization or the IMF. In actual fact, it just goes on and on and on. Now, in theory, they are all relatively benign organizations and institutions. There's like this, this sort of endless um, sea of NGOs which are funding other NGOs, which are funding institutions. And what I've noticed is that when it actually comes to having policy implemented and agendas implemented, they are able to do that to, they are able to dictate that to the, all of the nation states. Some may wince and some may bulk a little bit, but by and large, what you get is this uniform attitude all around the world. And that to me is not, that to me is on whatever issue it can be as well. That seems to me to be like an enormous amount of power to have. But all right, so this is kind of where we differ. I, I would say that he and I are kind of very similar up to this point, but he's seeing these international organizations as being separate from the nation states, separate from and above the nation states, but they aren't. If they are one, they they were basically brought into existence and supported by the United States. And this, the whole idea of these international organizations that have really picked up pace, uh, uh, really have been exist in existence since World War II, right? Like the IMF didn't exist before World War II. The UN, I mean, you had the League of Nations before World War II. So you had a, a corollary, but it's not the same. Um, the, the World Trade Organization, wasn't before World War II. So all of these things that have built up, all these international organizations are predicated on the international hegemony of the United States. Like it or hate it, that's 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 the truth. And when the the US though is typically uh more isolationist in its history that you know you go back uh in the 200 how many years? 250 years of existence, roughly, of the United States. It's mostly isolationist. It was very hard to get us into World War One until the very last minute. And there's some, you know, a reading of the First World War where America wasn't even needed, that we, we just kind of came in at the very last. And then World War Two, we had to have Pearl Harbor. You know? And ever since then, we yeah, we've been more expeditionary with our military, but that was not for um, territorial acquisition, like a typical empire. What the U.S. was interested in was uh, continuing these international organizations, the validity of these international organizations, the validity of free trade under this umbrella. And so they had to keep everyone in line. That was the, and I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying that's, that's what happened. And um, so anyway, these organizations have all sprung up under the umbrella of the U.S. interventionism 
and we're going back towards non-interventionism. The U.S. is coming home. There's fewer troops abroad than any time, I think, in the history of the United States, but it might be, you know, since maybe the year 1800 or something. Um, but fewest troops. Um, I think the, he'll talk about Afghanistan here and getting out of Afghanistan. That, that wasn't like a calculated thing. The powers that be didn't say, oh, we want to get out of Afghanistan. I mean, they did, but the reasons for it weren't like conscious because the U.S. people, the U.S. kind of uh, culture and hive mind of the United States is withdrawing from the world. We're withdrawing from our hegemony voluntarily. Just look at this Ukraine situation. Like we we won't put troops on the ground. Period. All we can do is send a few arms over there, send some money over there. And it's really half-hearted because the money and the troop and a lot of the weapons aren't even getting to the, the intended targets. It's being spilled out in this, this overweight international bureaucracy. And so the, the, the U and it's not popular in the United States. It definitely is not popular. So the U S is pulling back from the world and what's going to happen to these international organizations. What would happen to NATO if the U S said we're out? Well, they would have approximately 100 tanks. They would have like a hundred thousand personnel and, uh, two aircraft carriers. Um, but no, like, protective destroyers to go around those aircraft carriers because you know britain has two aircraft carriers but they don't have any destroyers to escort the aircraft carriers anywhere um and they have very limited airplanes very limited pilots um nato is pretty much nothing without the united states so nato would collapse what about the un i mean the un is headquartered in new york city if the u.s said i you know it's already going that way, you know, like how they treated Russia in in the uh, after the Ukraine invasion, how they treated the Russian uh, party and how they treat have treated China in the past. I mean, it's basically has lost most of its clout in the world. The WHO, the World Health Organization, has totally lost its clout. And what happens if it doesn't get any um you know, buy-in from the United States. I don't, I think we fund it quite a bit, but I think maybe the most funding comes from China. But if the U.S. was just to totally pull out and say, we we don't support the WHO anymore, uh, what would happen? There is no source of power out in, in like what this Mor Morgoth is saying, that there's some source of power in these international organizations outside and above the nation state. That is completely false. It all comes from the existing ruling order of the world, which was the United States with buy-in from other people. I mean, if we didn't have buy-in from the Europeans and we didn't have buy-in from all, uh, you know, South Americans and all these other places in the world, uh, our institutions would not have been hegemonic like that. But so the U.S., it's a U.S.-led order. It's not a U.S. only order. It's a U.S. led order. And that is where the power of all of these international institutions come from. It is derived from this 
buy-in of the world behind the Americans. And if the Americans say we're not doing it anymore, boom, all of those organizations collapse. I mean, people will view the WHO as a Chinese uh, arm of the CCP, right? Um, like they did almost during the, the coronavirus. So all of these international, international institutions, every single drop of their power comes from the nation states and specifically from the U.S.-led order of nation states. And that is one of my central tenets is the U.S.-led order of nation states is collapsing. That is what the globalists represent. All right, let's um, continue here. I'm not going to play through all this, but I'll just do half of it. So we have about like four more minutes, I think. The thing is, it isn't actually rooted to a city or to a, um, a, a nation or anything like that. So what you can see is that there, there is a, an internationalized, globalized elite uh, sort of cadre of technocrats who, through having the, all of these institutions under their thumb, are actually able to warp and dictate policy to all of these nation states who may well have million-man strong uh, armies standing there. But at the end of the day, they are being subjected to the whims of uh, what amounts to a, a, a kind of a wheel. And this is why I mentioned that at the beginning, because what you see then is that in this sort of digital technocratic world, they can use that as the, in times gone by, um, a country like uh, Britain would use the sea and the sea lanes. So then we can think, well, okay, so what are their, um, what, what, how, what are their strategic locations? What is their version of Gibraltar in this scenario? So if you take something like the United Nations or the World Health Organization, those institutions and the way that they have uh, power and influence over those institutions would be the equivalent of having key geographic locations which dictate policy, which can um, in, impose their will on the nation states. So the so I, I disagree here again is that the the root of power is not um, like some mental fiction. Uh, so the, these, these, the role of these international institutions that have no taxing authority, they have no army, they have nothing. They're just a bunch of uh, bureaucrats, globalists, technocrats that think they know best and how to centrally plan everything. And they're, they're sitting in a building somewhere. It has zero power. They're vested this power by the militaries and the taxation authorities of the, of the, of the member governments. All right. And if the largest member government pulls their support, that's going to go a long way to minimizing their role. Um, the thing about Gibraltar, right? I think it's a very, very clever uh, comparison. But the thing is that uh, holding Gibraltar had a huge benefit, cost benefit analysis. And they had to constantly keep the uh, enemies away from taking Gibraltar over. And you had to fund it, 
right? There was a cost-benefit analysis. So the cost-benefit analysis of these international Gibraltars or the, these, I guess, digital Gibraltars, I don't know what you would call them, um, these digital Gibraltars, they have a cost-benefit analysis too. And what happens when they, their revenue gets cut? Uh, the, the cost is going to be extreme. You know, the cost of securing the cost for Germany and Poland, I should say, Germany and Poland, to secure their eastern front, their eastern border, is extreme. And they have been able to benefit off of NATO sharing that cost with the United States um, and with other countries, of course, but uh, mainly the United States through NATO. So the, 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 all of this is a cost-benefit analysis. And the power, the real power in the world comes from being able to reduce your cost relative to the benefit. So when I talk about China, and one reason why I was be able to uh, you know, debunk the Thucydides trap with uh, China, I think it was maybe a year ago or 18 months ago on my podcast, I talked about the Thucydides trap and why it was just total garbage is because they have a cost structure that is much higher than the United States. Their internal security costs are extreme. Um, they have 1.2, 1.3 billion people and that the welfare costs are extreme where the U.S. has, what, 350, and we have a higher, technically a higher GDP, but we only have the cost of 350 million people to take care of their welfare, and the borders are super easy to protect. They're, the, the, you know, the longest peaceful border with Canada, and Canada doesn't have any sort of military to, to challenge, and Mexico is kind of a, it's, it's technically not a, conflict area but there there is some little bit of conflict going on at the border but nothing to the degree of say the india china border or the tibet cost to to keep the tibetans down to keep the the uyghurs down to keep the mongolians down there's more mongolians in china than mongolia um so there's a huge cost to keeping these, um, to keeping this this structure going. And real power comes from the difference between cost and benefit. The United States benefit, like the the profit of the United States, if, if you put it on a balance sheet, right? That's why uh, Michael Beckley talks about net GDP. You have to subtract all the costs to get that GDP number. So when you look at China, they might have a GDP equal to the United States, but their costs are five times more expensive. So the power is a net GDP. And it has nothing to do with these international organizations. So anyway, guys, that, that's where I'm going to leave it here because it is going on pretty long. And I don't want to just bore everybody with this. But uh, uh, I did record this. If you want to listen to the recording. You can become a paid member at BitcoinMarkets.com, $5 a month, and you can get all of my past live stream recordings. Um, let's see. Oh, we got bottom shelf Bitcoin in here. What's up? 
So I'm going to leave the mic open here like I do on every live stream for a few minutes. You guys just, uh, I guess you press a hand uh, or button to be allowed to speak. I'll allow you to speak. And then uh, you can make a question, comment, or concern, change the topic, or ask me to clarify whatever the case. So, all right, 30 seconds starting now. All right, while well, I'm waiting for to see if anybody wants to ask a question or make a comment. Um, yeah, please share this around, share my channel around, um, share me to your meetups and stuff like that, uh, to your friends and family. If they're getting interested in, in Bitcoin, they can at least subscribe to the Telegram channel and look at all my stream of consciousness. So um, also this, this week, guys, I have rolled back my FedWatch appearance to Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern. That is going to be the new time now, uh, moving from Tuesday to Wednesday, still at 3 p.m. Eastern time. Of course, I will uh, do a notification post here on Telegram and in my Discord and on Twitter, but uh, don't forget FedWatch. Don't know what I'm going to be talking about tomorrow, but there's lots to talk about. Carlo, go ahead, man. You just got to unmute. There you go. Uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, why do you think Germany is deindustrializing right now? Why they are uh, going that direction that is totally self-destructive? I, I really don't understand. Okay, you kind of broke up there, but let me know if I got the gist of it is that you were asking why Germany is shooting themselves in the foot right now? Yes, that's correct. Okay, um, I think, okay, so I, I did a tweet yesterday, I believe, saying that one reason why I'm not scared of these globalists, a lot of people are scared of losing their, losing the world to these, you know, global Marxists and, and, the reason why I'm not scared is because these technocrats, even though they they pride themselves or they think that they're these, uh, you know, really smart, technical central planners, they're actually very bad at central planning, ironically. So uh, I think Germany's case here is they have just bought so much into this idea of technocratic central planning, and that actually fits with uh, their culture, you know, which fits with their a geopolitical analysis of Germany is that they are, like I said, their trains run on time because they have this military type discipline. They are have a more centralized power, more centralized culture. And um, that does play well into technocracy and and Marxism. I mean, Marx was a German, right? So um, that is that's what i would say is that they just have an overconfidence in their ability to central plan and we'll see that it's it's driving them into the the dirt right now but we, we don't know the exact future uh, but we can definitely i think we can definitely predict that the european union is done for the euro is done for and what comes after that i mean germany's not going to cease to exist as as an entity uh, they will have some hard times, maybe a decade or so of, of harder times, but they will rise again and they will come back uh, into the forefront of European political 
discussions. But I think the next 10 to 20 years, the real power in Europe, at least continental Europe, is going to be France. Um, and that is one, they, they kept a lot of their military power. Uh, they also have the most defendable borders. They have the best uh, land for like agriculture stuff. Um, they, they have uh, good river systems. I mean, they have they have it all for uh, for the continental Europe. And uh, so I think in in the near term, in the next ten to twenty years, uh, France is going to shoot themselves in the foot less than uh, Germany. I mean, just look at the France shut down fewer of their nuclear plants, right? I think there is some um com like complications with their nuclear power right now but um that's just an example of how they haven't quite bought into all of this central planning nearly as much as germ the germans have and so uh, that's that's what i think they're going to have a hard uh, couple decades decade or two um which will in turn you know solidify and strengthen their culture and like i said they're in the like towards the beginning I love the diversity of cultures. That's what makes traveling so great. Um, and humanity so beautiful is the diversity of cultures that we have. And right now they're kind of killing that, right? In the European Union, they're trying to make everyone a European. Um, when it, it it's beautiful to be French, it's beautiful to be Italian. I mean, Italian is kind of a newish, uh, uh, ethnicity i guess you could say there, there's because well germany is is kind of new as well right uh, uh united germany but there is this idea of german and uh, yeah so the differences are beautiful and um uh, germany will rise again but right now they i think they just bought too much into the centralized technocracy the power of the technocrats to plan this stuff and they're just it's very hard to shake them of this belief. Um, and they won't like, they will always be slightly more um, susceptible to central planning. Uh, that's just like the, the ultimate result of the geography of Germany. Um, but yeah, I hope that answers your question. Absolutely. Thank you. Answer. Yes, sir. Any other questions, comments, concerns? All right, well, I love doing this stuff. Like I said, um, it's kind of like dominoes in your brain, you know, when you first fall down the Bitcoin rabbit hole and it makes your vision more clear and you the world makes more sense to you. I love doing it. It's almost therapeutic to talk this stuff out. So uh, thank you guys for joining. Thanks for all your support. The people that support me on BitcoinAndMarkets.com. Uh, don't forget to follow me everywhere and spread the word on your meetups and your social networks and, and all that. So thanks, guys. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>